Welcome to The Informed Life. In each episode of this show, we'll talk with people from different fields to find out how they organize information to get things done. I'm your host, Jorge Arango. My guest today is Lou Rosenfeld. Alongside Peter Morville, Lou wrote the seminal book, Information Architecture for the World Wide Web, affectionately known as the Polar Bear Book. In 2005, he founded Rosenfeld Media, where he and his team amplify user experience expertise through conferences and books, including my own Living in Information, which came out last year. In this conversation, Lou and I talk about how he manages information to effectively coordinate the various work streams at his company, including the upcoming Enterprise Experience Conference. You can find show notes for this episode at theinformed.life. I hope you enjoy it. Last night I was reorganizing my library here at home and I found a handout that I got from Lou um, in, back in 2003 when I attended his Enterprise Information Architecture workshop in, um, in the Washington, D.C. area. So I still keep that and, and cherish it. Most I don't have it any longer. You don't? I'm, afraid, so. I'm, I'm very afraid that you're going to actually bring it next time we see each other and I'm going to be even more embarrassed than I am right now. This was actually annotated. I, uh, I uh, was very excited in that uh, workshop. The workshop is something I attended because Lou's book, she co-authored with Peter Morville, Information Architecture for the World Wide Web, changed my life in more ways than one. It's a book that has been very influential for people, and it's a book about how to structure information so that people can find their own way in complex information environments. Well, and thanks to you to, to understand that information as well, because when we did the fourth edition, Jorge came on as a, a co-author and, uh, and really kind of squared uh, the, or really triangulated the, the, the findability side with the understandability side of IA. And, and, and I know that Peter and I are certainly grateful to you for doing that. And I'm sure many other people are as well. Well, like I said, it's a, it's a book that has changed my life in more ways than one, right? And uh, that was certainly uh, one of them. It, it was an amazing opportunity and one that I enjoyed tremendously. Now, you don't do information architecture um, for other information environments much these days, right? Uh, what, are you, what, what have you been doing, Lou? feels like I'm doing information architecture for uh, everything we didn't cover in the book in terms of examples. I mean, that was all about websites when we started off. I do very little of that, but um, I am uh, a publisher, as you know. <laughs> I, I published uh, your book, uh, Living in Information, uh, this year. Rosenfeld Media not only publishes books, but we also produce conferences like Enterprise uh, UX, uh, which is going to be changing names uh, for next year. We can talk about that later. And uh, the Design Ops Summit. And uh, we also have a uh, third line of business and corporate training. And uh, we're all, you know, f all those lines of business are focused on uh, some aspect of user experience design or a neighbor of UX. And I have to curate uh, in all those different settings. So I'm, I'm basically working with information uh, and working on IA of information for things like books, 
figuring out who can write and how they can write and what the structure of what they write would be. Later today, I'm going to be working on a new information architecture for the next Enterprise UX conference. And that's a lot of work, uh, the, the format and the, and the structure and, and how they support the content and what the content demands of the structure. So it's all IA all the way down, Jorge. It sounds like you have your hands full with a, a bunch of, of things that are related, but which require different types of information. And uh, you also have a team helping you with this. That's right. right? Yes, yeah, so, so I have uh, co-curators, uh, thank goodness, uh, people, um, some real strong IA people like Abby Covert helps us curate uh, the uh, Design Ops Summit along with Kristen Skinner and Dave Malouf. Uh, I work uh, with... Um, Uday Gajindar and Lada Gorlenko on Enterprise UX, and uh, with many other people as well who get involved in different roles. And then on the book side, uh, about to have a, a call with our editorial advisory board uh, in about an hour, and uh, we're going to get deep into um, how to curate and structure content there. Well, fantastic. It sounds like you have a lot going on. Uh, what tools are you using to manage all of this information? So some are pretty... Um, obvious. Uh, I live in email and, and specifically uh, in Gmail. I actually manage my own personal list of tasks in, uh, oh, what's it, uh, stickies on my laptop. Uh, I've tried some uh, different tools for managing tasks and have never been very happy with them because I always feel like they get in the way. And I just want to have a list of things I'm supposed to do. And I have a weird um, way of prioritizing my list of to-dos uh, in my sticky note. Uh, I bold certain things and I star certain things with a number of stars. And uh, sometimes I combine bolding and starring and I could never explain it to anyone, but it works for me. When you say sticky notes, are you talking about physical pieces of paper? Or are you talking about uh, the sticky yeah. notes app? The app. Like, it's like the absolute simplest app that exists on, on a modern piece, on a modern computer. And you're just typing out uh, to-dos. How are you doing that? Is it like one to-do per sticky? No, it's one sticky. It's just a list. It's just oh. a simple, simple list. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's so stupid in its simplicity, but it works for me. And again, I, I bold certain things. I add stars to other things. And sometimes I do both. Sometimes I even use all caps. And then I play with the sequence uh, on that list here and there. So there are things that have been on that list, I'm afraid to admit, for like a year toward the bottom without stars, without bolding, without all caps. And then there are things at the top that are so obnoxiously flagged with bolding and stars and caps that I'm so happy to uh, erase them from my list when I get them done. It sounds like you have a little system going there You've mentioned bolding and stars and all caps. Do these things mean different things? Do they indicate different statuses? What, what's up with that? Not really. Like I said, I don't know that I could explain it in a logical way. Uh, it's just um, Lou from earlier in the day or week or month um, trying to get Lou's attention at the moment with some obnoxious combination of past Lou putting things in future Lou's uh, line of sight and, and making sure future Lou doesn't lose sight of them. And it, it's 
sometimes I use dates as well. Like, uh, you know, I might say, uh, talked with so-and-so on such and such a date. It is stupid and illogical and yet useful and functional. And I, I, I think this is part of the problem that a lot of these tools have that we use for managing information, at least personal information management, is that they don't really and can't really understand the, the bizarre algorithms that we've created in our brains for, for just sort of how we manage things and time and uh, the hybrids of those things, things and time together, which is really hard. And it sounds like the system you've developed, even though it's hard to articulate as a system, has meaning for you and it helps you get your stuff done. Is that Absolutely. right? Yeah, I mean, that is fantastic in its own stupid way. I, but, you know, getting back to, to email, I'm really kind of embarrassed to admit how many things like signed contracts for my company, I, I start by looking in my email. And Gmail I, is really a fantastic tool for managing not only the, the kind of flow of, of, of emails that come in at the moment, but the, the archive is really strong. Maybe we can talk a little bit about its archival value, but I, I wanted to mention another tool that I use in concert with Gmail, and that's SaneBox. SaneBox? Yeah, SaneBox. Actually, Gmail is starting to kind of steal some of that functionality that SaneBox has and, and build it in. SaneBox is a, a tool that basically specialized uh, mailboxes that works with uh, Gmail or Outlook or any other basic uh, email tool. And um, what I use it for is when I send one of my errant authors who's behind on, on his uh, deadlines an email saying, hey, what's going on with uh, chapter seven? I may know that I'm not going to hear from them right away. I may not even want to hear from them right away. I, I probably want to know that they still are alive and that they are doing something, and maybe I, I, I'll give them a week to establish that they are still extant and actually working on their, their uh, Chapter 7. And so I'll, I, I BCC one week at samebox.com. The email then goes away. Uh, I file it. I don't have to have it in my inbox cluttering things up. And then if I have not received a response, it pops back up into my inbox. So I have to deal with it. So I like to just send and forget. And SaneBox helps me forget without worrying that I will forget forever because it's things that slip through the cracks that drive me nuts. It sounds like you're using a combination of sticky notes and SaneBox to keep track of commitments, right? Somehow you're, um, if I have a commitment with you to deliver that chapter seven um, on a particular schedule, then what this is doing is it's bringing it back to your attention at the right moment. You don't want to have it be bothering you until it's actually required. Exactly. I feel like all I do all day is email. And I probably, I, I did a, actually, I used Google uh, Gmail recently to figure out how many emails I'd, I'd actually written since I started 15 years ago. And it was something like a quarter million and so, you know, and, and with different people and we, like I said, we're in three lines of business and that's, that's just the work stuff. I mean, there's, there's other things as well. And I just can't manage all these conversations without tools like that, without being able to augment my own memory with Gmail's archiving uh, ability, 
and, and just the, the kind of basic thread management that they provide, which I think is really strong. And, and I tag everything. I really do. I mean, it's like I over tag, but I, I find that's pretty useful. And I think partly because the act of tagging something does something in your, in your own memory. I, I don't think we tag simply for, for future recall in the software. I think the act of tagging creates some connection uh, between neurons in our brains, between the piece of information and the tag. It's like the act of thinking about it, ascribing some metadata, some sort of meaning to that piece of information then works in your brain and stays in your brain in a certain way that is maybe as useful as for, for retrieval as the, the digital for version of the retrieval in the software. And how are you tagging things? Is it the labels in Gmail? Yeah. Do you find yourself tagging things in, with multiple labels uh, oh, yeah. for an individual email? Yes. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, my ontology is necessarily a good one. I mean, it's a personal one, right? So it, 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 it has that same kind of logic that let's say my system of prioritizing my to-dos in a sticky note has, which would mean nothing to really anyone else. But right now, my biggest struggle is I have a, a small team, seven mm -hmm. people, you know, growing kind of slowly but growing, and I've already run into a terrible challenge of managing tasks at a company level. And it's really, it's really managing curation, Jorge. So if you're, you're curating, you know, two or three conferences a year and, you know, many, many books at a time and, and many other things, and there's, there's aspects to each of these things, like you have to, curate and market and produce and I mean a whole uh, all these aspects of the life cycle I'm actually working with a lot more than seven people and a lot of them are outside my company and so um, how do you manage processes that are complex and require reminders of other people and cat herding and watching the calendar and when you're doing this with different types of products like a conference versus a book, those things have very different cadences that you have to deal with concurrently. So a, a conference cadence has a certain annual cycle and a lot that happens during, you know, the, the, the six months of that year that, that are immediately before the conference. A book has a totally different cadence that might last, God forbid, many years. And so I'm trying right now, I'm not... In, entirely sure what we're going to do it, but trying to uh, either staff up or build systems or some combination that will help with process management. And you could say it's project management, but to me, it's really more about process because it's really about flow more than outcome. It sounds like you have several concurrent things happening and that you somehow need to put rails around them individually, right? So that you keep the things that are related to a particular conference together, uh, both people-wise and commitment-wise. And, yeah. um, and it sounds like the system you developed for yourself is not something that can scale to meet the demands of the, the broader team. Is that right? No, and, and so, you know, at one point I was thinking I, I needed to hire an assistant. 
And at other points, I thought, well, no, maybe I need a project manager who works with not just me, because it's not just me. Uh, at other points, I've thought, well, we need to have essentially a company calendar. Yeah. And um, now I'm kind of thinking we need some sort of combination of those things. And uh, I'm not a manager, although everything I've described to you is a form of management, but it's mostly managing myself, and I'm, I'm struggling with that. And I, I'm really impressed by people more and more who manage organizations, mm-hmm. not just teams, but how they grapple with dozens or hundreds of people to do the kinds of things that we're talking about right now and that, that many of us find to be a struggle for ourselves. There's a, a struggle that a lot of people face in this regard, uh, regardless of uh, whether they are managers or not, is the keeping track of their uh, professional commitments, uh, their professional information, and their personal stuff. And it's a uh, particularly challenging issue, I think, for folks like, uh, like you and I, who kind of are in business for ourselves or our, our own bosses, so that there isn't that clean demarcation between um, work stuff and personal stuff. And I'm wondering if that's something that you deal with, and if so, how? I know many people it. have a separate uh, email account for work uh, and, uh, than they do for personal use. I've never done that. I've never wanted to do that. Um, and yet I find that in the last couple of years, the way I manage my time has a much thicker boundary between work and home. I go home now and I don't really work. Not much. I try to really set aside work, certainly in the evening to be with family and, and you know, cook and things like that. And part of it is just like, it depends what your personal life is like and how much you need to focus energy in that life. So um, I have kids. I really want to pay attention to them when I'm with them. I don't want to be reading my email and thinking about work and vice versa to a degree. So um, I've been wondering about that sort of psychology cascading into how I manage my own information, whether it's personal or, or, uh, or work. And uh, that's an open question for me. I don't know what the answer is yet. I'm trying to, like, the test would be if I could ever separate my work email from my personal email. And, you know, I guess there's a sort of an underlying psychology of how we, it's not just managing information. It's what you said earlier. It's managing commitments and how you feel about commitments. Mm-hmm. So for me, there's, there's like, this fear of other people dropping the ball of things falling through the cracks is something that bothers me a lot. Like I was supposed to be on a call this morning and I'd sent out calendar invites to everyone and no one showed up and I was really annoyed. Uh, and somehow that fell through the cracks of my system in, in the sense that I didn't do the normal thing I might do, which is confirm um, maybe same bucks. Uh, I should have had it remind me to do that. The flip side of that is feeling very bad about emails that are unanswered by me. So I have a feeling that uh, a lot of the people you speak with in your podcasts are, are going to be inbox zero folks or, or not. That's almost like a dichotomy on, of the world of humanity. Like, you know, everyone always says, oh, there's two kinds of people. 
oddly, my dad used to say all people are either creeps or assholes. It meant that in the most positive way. Uh, I think either you're an inbox equals zero person or you're not. And um, I... Which one are you? I'm an inbox zero person. I'm almost never there. And I suffer when I see anything in my inbox. There's always something in my inbox. I'm always suffering. But, you know, the worst thing is... um, is that I've been like, I take pride in getting back to people, but there's one area because it requires so much labor on my part to do what I feel like is a good job in responding to, and that's book proposals. And they sit in a folder that is not my inbox. This is a folder in Gmail? Yeah. And they gather dust because it's always like, oh, I'll find, yeah, some one of these days I'm going to find a whole day to go through and get back to people and follow up. And I feel terrible about it because it's like the, it's like the one area I'm not good at getting back to people on a timely basis on. And I, I feel especially bad because I know how hard it is to, to start work on a proposal and, and hear nothing back. Um, and there's a certain pain in that aspect of information management. You know, it's the flip side of, uh, wanting people to get back to you that you expect yourself to get back to them. And uh, I think that has an impact on how I manage my information very much. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to A, the inbox zero thing with having uh, an email sitting there screaming at you, uh, you know, you haven't touched me yet. And also the filing things away for l- later uh, later processing and then later never happening for whatever reason right i'm wondering if you have found any ways to break that log jam um, uh, and i'm thinking here I, I can give you an example from my own um, from my own experience i've realized that stuff that reaches my inbox after around 3 p.m in the afternoon i'm not going to be able to deal with as competently and i just usually lay those uh, let those lay overnight and, and tackle them very early in the morning. Do you have any uh, hacks like that? No, I don't. And, uh, and in your case, it doesn't surprise me that you do that because you, you probably are, are, you know, awake at 4 a.m. anyway. So uh, I wouldn't, you know, if I knew that someone was up as early as you, didn't get back to me uh, right away, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't complain about hearing from you the next morning. In my case, no, I don't have a, a, a kind of threshold of time, a time in the day that I stop. It's just really when I leave work and kind of, you know, I have that boundary between work and, and home. And once I'm home, I don't, you know, I just don't think about work. I'm just like, I'm done. Uh, I have to tune out. You have a physical office that you go to, right? Yeah, I'm in it right now. Um, there is this... The, the, the nice thing about a commute, even mine, which is only about a 12-minute walk, is it does give you that, like, uh, that time version of the boundary, the temporal version of it, uh, to kind of reset and um, put things to bed at work as you're heading home. There's an image from my childhood that, that always sticks in my mind with regards to this, and it's uh, from uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, as I recall, that show always started with Mr. Rogers walking through his front door and changing his, um, I think he changed, the, the image that sticks in my mind is his shoes. He would take off his shoes and change into loafers. Oh, 
I thought you were going to say, I think it was a cardigan, but you're right. And the shoes are even a better image. Yeah. And, and in my mind, that was like a little ritual that was saying, I am now switching modes. I am no longer the public persona. I am now in the home. You know, I'm so glad you brought that, that word up, ritual, because uh, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about social media. And I recently left Facebook. I deactivate it. So that means uh, if I ever did want to go back, I can. I won't lose everything. But if you look for me on Facebook now, you won't find me. I did this about oh, about a month ago. And uh, I think one of the reasons I was unhappy with Facebook is that it respects no ritual. It didn't matter when, whether at work or at home, uh, time of day, what I had to do or not do. It just it made me pull it up. Now, I know you're going to say, or someone might say, well, Lou, you, you did it. Yes, but I was addicted. And uh, any moment in the day, I would check. You know, like, I don't know, 30 times a day, 40 times a day. It was insane. And it just, it's so addictive. And it's so, let's put it this way, uh, of maybe not well-designed, but effectively designed, certainly not ethically designed, that I just was becoming a slave to it. And it wasn't like a ritual for me. I could not have said, you know, I'm going to check it once in the morning uh, before I go to work, and then I'm going to check it on the way home from work, and then I'm done. And in fact, I've been off of it for, as I said, about a month, and I still pull it up. I still, the muscle memory still starts typing FA into the address window or address field of the window in my browser, and uh you know, I'm still doing it. I'm wondering when that's going to stop. What were you using Facebook for before uh, quitting? Well, um, a lot of things, a lot of good things, uh, fundraisers, um, asking questions that I wanted to get advice on, like uh, I need to buy a new TV. Uh, what do you folks think? I would, I found it to be a great environment for writing. Like, you know, just sharing an idea as half-baked as it might be. A lot of the articles I've written in the last few years started off as postings in, in Facebook, and you get that immediate feedback, which is amazing. I also found that from a business perspective, I could do user research in many cases in a very light, informal way, but nonetheless, extremely valuable. And I, I really debated whether or not I could leave Facebook uh, given the, the business utility I was getting. But there were so many bad things, just unbelievably bad things about it, that um, I'm really glad I'm, I'm no longer there. And it's been a month, and I've, I've missed it far less than I thought. Yeah, you know, you were talking about the fact that it respects no ritual, which is a, such a, a, an interesting and enticing um, phrasing for that. I, the image that came to my mind is, standing at the line in the grocery store waiting to pay and just pulling this thing up and how these tools like Facebook have kind of crowded out the quote-unquote boring moments in our lives. And uh, that maybe comes at the expense of kind of observing what is around us. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, looking up while you're walking, looking mm -hmm. up. How many of us do that like we used to? Think of the things we're missing. You know, Facebook has gotten in, um, in hot water, especially uh, after the 2016 um, US election, for the influence it's had 
on people's perspectives on politics especially. And I'm curious how you find the information you need to make decisions such as, for example, who to vote for. I still use some social media. Uh, I will check into Twitter. Maybe a new story is breaking just to sort of see how people are interpreting it. Um, and there's some people whose opinions in that, that channel that I respect. And so uh, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, our friend Andrew Hinton, anytime he tweets, uh, I, I know he's going to have uh, given the topic quite a bit of thought. You know, so there's people whom I respect that, that, that essentially live in social media, and I still live in some. But that said, I've gone back to some more uh, traditional news publications uh, and have spent more time with them. You know, I've been like the New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, I keep meaning to subscribe to The Economist. I also, I feel like one of the really important things for me uh, about getting out of uh, Facebook in particular is, is freeing up time. So um, since 2016, like a lot of people in the States, I, I've become a lot more socially active and politically active you know, doing things in person and doing things in person within my community. And so I've actually, through joining organizations and, and being involved in, in uh, political action, I get a very different perspective on what's going on, especially locally, which I think a lot of us miss out on. I, I mean, Facebook isn't really going to tell me what's going on in my neighborhood. Um, you know, maybe some of the people I know in my neighborhood on Facebook, I might learn something from them, but really it's not the same as getting involved locally. So I'm looking at it as I, as I freed up time to spend in more valuable, impactful ways, especially locally. And so I get more information straight from other people. You can be lied to in person, but that's not the same as I mean, you can your bullshit detector is going to be a lot stronger than if you're being lied to in Facebook by a troll or a, a bot that, that's posting something that's been completely fabricated, but in such a clever and well-designed manner that most of us can't tell. From your description, it sounds to me like you are talking about uh, real kind of person-to-person -person interactions as opposed to something that's mediated through some kind of digital channel, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, everything is mediated. The context, even in person, mediates to some degree. The choices you've made mediate to some degree. I, I tend to, you know, start off working with people on causes that uh, we already have in common. And so there's a bit of uh, kind of reinforcing our, our bubbles or, you know, it's, it's not necessarily uh, unmediated, but I think at least we have more agency in how we uh, 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 create those, those contexts that we, we, we gather information in. Whereas in a walled garden like Facebook that's driven by uh, non-transparent algorithms and, and, and predatory business models, we, we really don't know. We really don't know what's going on. And we have no impact on, on how that, that environment does that mediation. Zero. Well, one of the things about meeting with people in person and especially around causes um, 
where you have a shared interest is that by definition, you know, you have a vested interest in having those conversations play out successfully because you are, you, you have shared goals, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, your kid's school or having your neighborhood be a place that you are, that you are happy living in, right? Uh, so the, the very nature of the relationship nudges people to put aside their differences to work together just because they have shared goals that are more clearly defined. With that in mind, I want to focus uh, on a community that you bring together every year and which I've been lucky enough to be a part of, which is the Enterprise UX Conference, a gathering of folks that come together kind of in real life. I'm wondering if there are any lessons that you've learned from your real-life interactions with your neighbors that um, you bring to these curated experiences that you, uh, that you put on for folks to help them develop their careers? So I don't know that how much I've learned about, you know, the intera- from the interactions I have uh, walking down my, my street. Um, but what, to me, is the commonality, and I, I think this is something we forget, and certainly in the conference business at times, is that it, every interaction that we have with other humans is generally conversation. It's the exchange of information. And you know, when I'm walking down the street and I see a neighbor, that's what we do. And uh, we're, we're trying to influence each other to some degree. We're trying to inform each other. Uh, but ultimately, we're having conversation and, and we're just enjoying that. Uh, and it comes naturally. What the influencing, the convincing, whatever, it, it's almost secondary as long as we're having the conversation. And, uh, and we're both willing to do that. And I think conferences, you know, I think you have to see them as essentially um, a bit more produced, polished, uh, distilled versions of a community's conversation that's happening sort of in disregard of of physical and to some degree temporal constraints. It's happening. So people talking about experience in the enterprise setting is happening. And you can pull it together and try to figure out the, the zeitgeist of that conversation once a year. And if you really work hard and do a good job, it, it's going to come out pretty well. And I think we've, we've done a good job. It's been very driven by user research when we do our programming and find our speakers and so forth. That said, you're in the conference business and you're doing it once a year. This is the other 362 days a year that you're not really necessarily part of that conversation. But it's still happening. So um, what we've started to do is host monthly conversations about enterprise UX or in the case of design ops about that subject as well. I'm also hosting a, a, a third conversation every month about advancing research, which we're not totally sure what that means yet, but there's certainly something to it. And um, I've been enjoying getting these conversations going via Zoom, same tool we're using right now. And we get uh, the one we did yesterday had almost 100 people participating, get someone to talk about the subject area. Yesterday, it was design ops. We we're talking about metrics and design ops and research ops. And it was fascinating. And um, it also is going to help us understand 
what to cover and maybe who can cover those topics at the next conference. So um, we do that with Enterprise UX. And um, I wanted to mention that we're actually changing Enterprise UX pretty dramatically. Next year, we're going to rename it Enterprise oh. Experience. Um, and uh, it's going to take place in San Francisco, nice and convenient for you again, uh, June 3rd through 5th. And uh, it's the fifth one we'll have done. Uh, and the use case originally was to, to, to help UX leaders and managers get UX built as a a function or a capability within an enterprise setting uh, and make it sustainable and not uh, subject or prone to being torn out by the next new CEO. And um, what we found is that the use cases change. There's really two use cases now. One is we're trying to help those same UX leaders and managers um, level up the, the people they're recruiting to their teams who may not have, who may be great craftspeople, but they have no, experience or skills really when it comes to the business acumen and, and soft skills to succeed in the enterprise setting. You can be a great graphs person, but if you don't know how to communicate, how to negotiate, how to listen, and how business works, you're not going to succeed in the enterprise. So that's one of the use cases that we're going to try to address. And the other one is that those um, leaders and managers only impact one aspect of the experience and they have peers in, in engineering and product and CX and analytics and other areas. It's sort of like a lateral use case. How do we set up UX leaders and managers to communicate and align with and partner with those other functions and their peers in those other functions? And so that's the other thing we're going to be addressing. And so uh, I will just suggest uh, if you want to keep up with this, um, you can, Go to enterpriseux.net, join the list. Uh, we're making that into a community. Very soon, our website will change, and you'll be able to keep up with the monthly calls and, and participate in those and also help influence our program as we, we pursue these two new use cases. You know what I find interesting, and uh, just to try to wrap up our conversation by tying it back to the beginning, is that the challenge that you're describing for these designers going into these enterprise environments is not dissimilar from the challenge you were talking about earlier. Uh, and it has to do with how do you scale the tracking of, of the information that you're dealing with and the tracking of the, your commitments to yourself and to others, right? It's like, how do you manage these conversations in such a way that you can work jointly towards goals? And that kind of implies that you know what those goals are. So ultimately, these are also information management problems that, that are happening at, uh, at scale. It's information management at scale. And it's also, um, let's never forget the, the, the unappreciated um, ingredient in everything we do, which is time. Because time has an impact on information man and information management. And when you add time to information, you often end up with conversation. And I think, again, that's what a lot of us are really ultimately trying to manage and support. Whether you call it collaboration or something else, I think that's really what it comes down to. Well, Jorge, um, I, I know you wanted to wrap now, and I actually, um, uh, I've probably uh, uh, taken your very first podcast to, to a longer length than um, you might have originally intended, but I really appreciate that you had me on and uh, it's been great to talk with you uh, and I wish we had more time, but uh, 
I'll, I'll say that this is now my, my favorite new podcast. Can't wait till the next wow, one. Wow, Lou, thank you. And uh, I'm so glad that you closed on time because I'm so thankful for yours. Thank you for, for sharing with us.